BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Please check out my new nonfiction book, The Mysterious Case of Rudolph Diesel. There's only one week left to pre-order. Publishers Weekly gives the book a starred review, calling it a thrilling investigation and a wildly enjoyable outing. Lee Child says, outstanding and a conclusion worthy of James Bond. Historian Jay Winnick says, equal parts Walter Isaacson and Sherlock Holmes. The mysterious case of Rudolph Diesel yanks back the curtain on the greatest caper of the 20th century. Please check it out, and I promise you'll love it. Welcome to Dedicated with Doug Brunt. You have just gained access to an exclusive insider's look at the lives and works of some of your favorite authors and hear conversations with the world's greatest writers as they discuss their writing lifestyle, creative process, latest work, and behind-the-scenes revelations. Welcome to Dedicated. I'm your host, Doug Brunt. Today, we're talking with Meryl Gordon. Meryl is an award-winning journalist and best-selling author of several books, including Mrs. Astor Regrets and The Phantom of Fifth Avenue. She's also on the faculty of NYU's Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute, where she teaches a very popular graduate-level course on journalism and magazine writing. And in addition to all that, she's a friend of mine of many years. Meryl, welcome. Thank you, Doug. It's great to see you. The last time I saw you was our memorable dinner right before the pandemic. It was my last oh dinner my out with you and Megan before the world shut down. So that, great to yeah, see I, you again. We can mark timelines by COVID, unfortunately, but that's right. It was our pre-COVID dinner so long ago. Happy things are better now. <laughs> yes. Well, we, we'll be celebrating with your cocktail choice, a gin and tonic, a classic. So I'll get going on that. This is, uh, it feels like gin is making a nice little comeback, at least with the, the younger set, though. I'm not sure Tonic is enjoying the same comeback. My it's husband's like a martini man, you know, but um, I don't know. I like gin and tonics, and we found this fancy new gin that he discovered, um, which has juniper in it. So it's been, it's a nice summer treat. And I don't know, it's steaming hot where I am in Martha's Vineyard, and I think it's steaming hot where you are. So it's a particularly good time for a drink. Yes, yeah, a nice way to cool off. I know you guys used to drink Plymouth gin. I'm actually having a Bar Hill gin, which is a gift from Chris Bojalian. It's distilled in Vermont, mm. so almost locally for me. So there are well, cheers for doing this author's thing. You get uh, alcohol from your your yes. Cheers to you. Cheers. Oh, that is good. I haven't had a gin and tonic in years. I forgot how good. So can I start by congratulating you? Because you've got a book coming out very soon, which is completely riveting. And um, I hope we can talk a little bit about you today, as well as whatever you want to ask me. 
Oh, you're, that's very kind of you. Thank you. H- happy to. And, and I, thanks for saying that. What's funny, we, you know, we were talking about your husband, Walter, and, and uh, my wife. It's, when we get together, maybe because of the occupations of our spouses, or I don't know what, but we generally talk about current events or our present work. And so I actually don't know all that much about your background. And so I, I looked it up. I read you were born in Rochester. Actually, I was born in Hartford, Connecticut, and then my, which was my, uh, I'm sorry, in Norwood, Connecticut, my mother's hometown. First couple years in New York City, then West Hartford, and then Rochester, where I was the editor of my high school newspaper, sending me down this road. All right. You know, Wikipedia will have to update it. It's like, (laughs) if Wikipedia is to be trusted, I was about to add to that last sentence there, so it cannot be trusted, but you did at least do high school in Rochester. I did, uh, University of Michigan, where I met my husband, Walter Shapiro. He was four years older, and he was running for Congress, and I was working for the Michigan Daily, and it was kismet, although we didn't really get together for a number of years later. And then I mostly worked for newspapers for many years, for the uh, Cincinnati Post, the Rochester Democrat and Chronicle. I was one of the women who organized the newsroom for Gannett and Rochester, sort of feminism and ended up um, getting promoted to Washington, worked as an editor, covered business and various things, and a long way to becoming a a magazine writer in New York. But um, training was really helpful just because you really learn, you know, who, what, when, where, why. And then magazine writing, as you know, has the pleasure of longer form. Um, And I specialized in profiles for many years, which is what led me to writing biographies. Right, right. When you were in undergrad at, at Michigan, were you studying this? Were you studying journalism or magazine writing? Um, no, it wasn't a major. I was an English major, but I always knew um, that I wanted to write. But I thought, like you, I was going to be a novelist. And mm-hmm. I think it's funny, you've gone from novels to nonfiction. I hope someday to go from nonfiction to novels. <laughs> I think what you do is harder in many ways, because it's a total creature of the imagination. But also, as you know, from the research you did for your book, um, research is fun, but gosh, it is so time consuming and yeah. you have to double check and triple check everybody's spelling and the dates and the years. So sometimes I think making it all up must be so much more fun. What do you think? Oh my God. You know, getting into the copy edit phase, the second pass page phase of a nonfiction book, building out the notes section was just really laborious. And that's the toughest part of the phase of it for me, but I, I loved the the research piece. That was really like, you know, mining through treasures for me? Well, it's it's the same. I've, um, I'm now writing my fourth book. And the first three biographies were all about women who had died relatively recently. So there were a million people around that I could speak to. In fact, my last book, I did speak to Bunny Millen, who was my book subject before she died. The book I'm writing now is about a woman named Pearl Mesta, and she died in 1975. What that means is there really are no contemporaries who knew her when. She was very close to um, many different presidents. So I've been lucky enough to talk to both of LBJ's daughters, but they were kids. So my life has been archives, the Truman Archive, the uh, Eisenhower Archive in Abilene, Kansas. I didn't see you there, Doug, you know, it's in the Yeah, yeah. Well, I want to get into that stuff a little bit more in detail when we get into your process section. You moved to New York. Did you move there feeling like that's where the center of the action is? Or was there a specific job that brought you in? Um, It was a moment in a marriage. My husband and I were both in Washington and we both were offered new jobs. And his was in New York with Newsweek. And mine was Mm -hmm. with Knight Ritter in Washington. And I realized that we didn't have a marriage that was going to survive a commute. 
So I came to New York and I initially wasn't happy about it. And then I was thrilled because it opened up so many other possibilities than just writing about government and politics. I've been writing about the Federal Reserve and the Treasury Department. Suddenly I'm writing about Broadway. I'm on a plane yeah. with Carly Simon writing about rock stars. I'm writing about, you know, food and fashion for New York magazine. So I feel very lucky. But initially I was I was kind of cranky about being dragged as a spouse. So how, when you came to New York, how did you land these amazing jobs? Were you working for New York magazine mostly or you were doing profile pieces and then you sort of put them wherever? Um I initially came, Gannett was kind enough to transfer me. So I initially came as an economics and business writer. And then I got hired by a TV show. It was a new business show that um, was on ESPN. They hired lots of um, smart print people. And when that show was canceled, um, I began to freelance. And that's how I got into all these other fields. And then I was just pitching madly like crazy. And then wound up um, with a, as a contract writer for New York Magazine. And then doing stuff for Vanity Fair. Oh, that's amazing. When did you start teaching? Um, I began teaching in 2006. Uh, basically, I'd always been sort of curious about it. Um, Walter was on the campaign trail. I had nothing to do at night. I ran into the head of a NYU program. I said, if you ever need anyone, keep me in mind. I, and she said, I need someone. So I initially <laughs> began teaching a profile writing class. And then after three years, I was hired to run the entire program. And what that means is I both hire professors to teach, I read applications, and then I teach a couple classes a year. And the surprise for me is, you know, it was always about my byline. I was always so excited when I, you know, my name was on the cover of New York Magazine. And now it's completely thrilling when my students get bylines. I've got one of my students um, has a class assignment in the New York Times today, and I am almost as happy as her as I would have been if it were me. So it's fun. Oh, that's so great. Well, and actually in another small story, this is thanks to you. I have a booking coming up pretty soon for a guest on this show who is another former student of yours uh, who has a book coming out about uh, Clearview AI, Cashmere Hill. Hill. Yeah, she, she's terrific. She began researching, looking at privacy and tech, even as a grad mm -hmm. student, and has turned that into a major beat and has done really fun things like trailed her husband all day long, everywhere he went, everything he did using tech. So I think you'll have a good time with her. Oh, that's great. What's, it must be fun for you to see your coaching tree <laughs> sort of develop and grow as all these writers uh, come from your course and, and sort of blossom out there professionally. It is. And I've hired some as teachers and fact checkers for my books. And, uh, and it's nice because it also sort of keeps you engaged and involved with a different generation. Yeah. You have these so, young kids to keep you up to date with music and art and what's on TV. So I, I get my students. You know, it is a great way because for us writers, particularly doing nonfiction where you're really in the bunker of some archive or hold up for, you know, months on end working on your book. It is nice to have another side of your career. For me, this show, for you teaching and engaging with a number of students and co-faculty and things like that. It's nice to have that other side to your life. Otherwise, it's really isolating. Well, it's interesting because you and I are at very different book stages and they're so completely different because the writing, you know, you're sitting in your room. I don't know about you. Sometimes I find myself reading old newspaper archive stories and suddenly it's one in the morning. I'm thinking, what am I doing? But you're doing that whole solitary thing and it's great. Mm -hmm. And then you have to market and sell and you're about to hit the road and do book readings. And, and it, it really is like having the split personality. I always 
gain weight towards the end of my books and then lose weight as I head into the uh, book tour <laughs> so I can look good for the book tour. You know, I've never heard anyone uh, mention that, but I'm, I'm going to weigh myself before and after the tour and I'll, I'll report back. Doug, um, I don't think that's an issue for you. <laughs> well, you know, I've got these young kids that keep me on the run, chasing them around and and uh, between that and the gin and tonics, I'm staying, you know, reasonably, uh, reasonably in shape. So 06, you started teaching. 08, your first big book comes out. It's Mrs. Astor Regrets, and it got incredible reviews. I have the hard copy first edition right here. Amazing reviews from none other than Walter Isaacson and Tom Brokaw, among, among many, many others. And that's actually a good jumping off point into process, because I know a little bit of the story of how you worked on that. Um, not only was there some secondary research, but you did dozens, if not hundreds, of interviews of primary research. Can you tell us how that process was for this book? What I can tell you is there's a level in which I am a deeply insecure human being. And I feel like if I research hard enough, if I talk to enough people, then I can get it right. So I became truly obsessed with that book. I talked to 230 people. The amazing thing was that they talked to me. I mean, I was kind of amazed because this involved talking to Oscar de la Renta, Annette de la Renta, Barbara Walters, um, traipsing up and down, you know, Fifth Avenue, talking to every rich person. Um, it was funny. I ran into Tom Brokaw, who I knew slightly at a um, some kind of social event. I told him I was doing this book. He said, I have a great story about Brooke Astor. So I called him and I remembered that he was friendly with Nancy Reagan and that Nancy Reagan was one of Brooke's best friends. So at the end of our interview, I said, you know, Tom, can I use your name with Nancy Reagan? He said, OK, you know, the way he speaks. And I called and, <laughs> and Mrs. Reagan's secretary said, you know, she doesn't give interviews. I'm really sorry. And and then five minutes later, the phone rang back and said, you know, Mrs. Reagan loved Brooke Astor. She'll talk to you. So I was kind of astonished doing that. It was also one of those things where I had been assigned a story on Brooke Astor by New York Magazine, and I spent a couple of weeks trying to research it. I was able to talk to her son at that point, um, sort of a strange, interesting character. And I was freelancing. So after three weeks, I didn't really have a story. You know, I wasn't going to be paid. So at this point, I kind of gave it up. And then the day that the whole scandal broke, that her grandson sued his father, you know, with Annette de Laurent, Henry Kissinger, David Rockefeller, we were leaving for Martha's Vineyard. And there I see my doorstep, disaster for Mrs. disaster in the Daily News. So I threw everything I had in the car and I left messages for New York Magazine, which was all, they were all on break that week saying, you know, if they wanted me to do a piece, and I had that cinematic moment, literally, as the boat pulled in with our car on it to Martha's Vineyard, I got the call saying, do the story. At which point, I'm in the wrong city. I'm in a house in the woods. But I had called <laughs> right. all these people, and I was able to call more. And when I was able to reach Brooke Astor's grandson to say, I, I spoke to your father, he spoke to me. So I got this story. And then over the weekend, I kept thinking, I am so not done with these people. Like, how does one of the most famous families in the world blow up in public? So I sent a mm -hmm. note to my agent. I'd had many book proposals that nobody wanted. And she got back to me a couple of days later, said, come to New York. I took off my jeans. I put on my pearls. I went and did meetings. I put my jeans back on. I went to the airport and then I got competitive offers. So it was kind of an amazing experience. Yeah. But I have to say, um, initially, you know, I was terrified. I mean, we've never written a book. You don't know how you're going to do it. You don't know how to structure it. One of the things I did, which I noticed that you have done in your book as well, is create a timeline. In your book, you've mm -hmm. got everything that happened to Rudolf 
diesel. And I did that with Brick Astor. And I began to, you know, every year what happened, you know, news clips, whatever. So at the point when I began to write, I had, a you know, an outline of sorts in front of me. Oh, that's what happened in 1997 kind of thing. But um, anyhow, mm-hmm. it was a lot of fun. So when my editor mentioned to me, you know, because mine was follows a number of different threads and my editor said, when in doubt, chronology is your friend. Just fall yes. back on that if, if it's, you know, unless it's obviously needs to go the other way, but tried to stick with that. So what, on the interview front, I wanted to ask you, because you did so much of that and you're, you're a real pro at that. Maybe we'll get to this a little bit too, because, you know, this scandal over the, the Astor inheritance broke in the midst of you being right in the middle of the story. So you're in the courtroom and there are, there's some great stories about that that I want to ask you about too. But just as a technical matter and, and a process matter with the interviews, how do you handle the ground rules up front? Do you say, look, this is on the record or what if or on background or off the record? What if someone tells you something, you know, saying, look, I don't really want you to use this, but it's not in the book. Or how do you set up your ground rules basically for interviews? I mean, usually I presume it's on the record unless they say otherwise. Or I'll say up front, this interview is on the record, but if it's something you want to tell me that you want to tell me on background, just say so. And then often, if it's something that I, you know, if they say something fabulous that I want to use later, I, I will call back to say, you know, you said this thing, it's really great. Here's the context I would use it in. And most of the time people say yes. I mean, one of the things that was interesting to me, um, I had never really been interviewed myself before until I began, you know, writing books and being interviewed about them. And you, you realize you're terrified. We're all terrified of making fools of ourselves. Usually it's not some great big secret. It's much more, you know, does your grammar make sense? You know, were you going uh, 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 every 30 seconds kind of thing? So I found that it really wasn't that hard to get people to speak to me once um, once I got going. And also I ended up having almost a daisy chain effect because I would write to people to say, Nancy Reagan, Tom Brokaw, so-and-so spoke to me. So once they knew that well-known people trusted me enough to speak to me, then it wasn't a huge problem mm-hmm. to get them to cooperate. How do you handle the part about the book being sort of honest, warts and all type of thing, which could come from you know one of two angles. Either you're interviewing, for example, you mentioned Nancy Reagan, who has a great affection for Brooke Astor. And you, know, you want to get the real story, not one slanted by her love of Brooke Astor. Or conversely, over time, you could fall in love with your subject a little bit too. So how do you keep it sort of down the middle? It's a great question because especially if you're dealing with families, that there's this fine line of you want to tell the truth, but you you know would prefer not to have people angry with you. Um, I was very lucky with my most recent book on Bunny Mellon because she was a really, really difficult woman. And I got full cooperation from her family, her grandchildren, her son, her relatives. But everybody said to me up front, she was tough. She was not always nice to us. So I knew that I had permission in a way to be honest. I think I would have been tortured otherwise. I mean, it was, you know, I've never written an authorized book, but obviously I prefer to do it with with people's cooperation because it's a better story because you get to hear their side of events. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, there is a certain looking over your shoulder. I mean, you're in your book. Everybody was dead. They were long dead. (laughs) That was a lot of secondary research. (laughs) One of the toughies took me a long time to realize that everybody talks. So if, if I interview somebody, he'll call his friend and say, Oh, Merrill Gordon asked me this. So you realize sometimes you have to be careful about what you ask and when you ask it. 
because, mm-hmm. you know, everybody can shut down you. It hasn't happened to me, but I've always been very worried about it. Yeah. Let's talk the economics of it for a moment, too, because I know some of these interviews require you to get on a train or a plane or a car. And so you get your advance, you, you get the phone call saying, go for it with the Astor book, here's some money. And then you've got to sort of figure it all out. And the rest is on you. So how did you well, I have to figure say, out the economic side? At the end of every book, and I'm winding down now, I American Express and I are very close personal friends. Because I always end at the end of these books, it's twenty or thirty thousand dollars that I have had to go into the hole. Whether it's travel, whether it's um, paying for fact checking, paying for photos, and then you get the next chunk of the advance, and it's like, ah, oh, because I can, you know, I can pay everybody off and I can come out ahead. But yeah, it's, um, you know, it's always unnerving when you're partway through the book and realize that the money is gone. The first book I did very quickly. I wasn't doing anything else. So that helped. Um, Ever since I've been teaching at NYU, I've had a salary. So there's been, although I took a sabbatical during one and Mm -hmm. part of a sabbatical during another. So I've had, I've been able to make rent without, you know, going deeply into the hole. But the economics are are really hard. And particularly um, if you're starting off as a writer and you're not getting a large advance, you really have to have faith in yourself. That is a tough thing. And, and you, I know your, uh, your work at NYU is very good. I don't know if they're still uh, giving you housing or not, but I know that's a, no, a nice uh, perk for you guys. We, some people have it, you know, we, we have our own place, which we're quite happy with. So how about by hand or do you key it in when you are writing the, the draft of the book? Um, I'm all computer. I mean, I mean, I take notes, yeah. but um, my handwriting has become almost illegible to me. So I really, I tape everything. Mm-hmm. I type up everything. Um, works better that way. Oh, and it's so also the interviews are all recorded. Yeah. And then you, so then you'll type it in. So there, you're not, you're not sort of typing in front of a computer during the interview. Like, I suppose that could be off-putting to your. Some people do. Um, I know there's great software that my husband uses, Otter, in which it's a self-transcribing tape recorder. I haven't used it yet. How about uh, when you're doing the writing, coffee, martinis, oh, what do you, what's um, the drink of choice? Yeah, coffee in the morning. And then, you know, if I'm really bad, you know, Diet Coke in the afternoon. Now, I have a question for you about your writing process, which <clears throat> relates to a little bit. I think the hardest thing when you're writing a book is to say, today is the day I'm starting my book. I'm going to write my first sentence. I mean, it is so incredibly daunting. And every time I've started a book, there's been some incident, some dramatic thing that happened that made me feel like I had to write. Uh, with my first book, Brooke Astor, I couldn't quite figure out what I, how I was going to start, what I was going to say. And then my pinky got caught in a door and broke. And I thought, I have to start writing the, the next day. Otherwise, I'll never write the book if I use this as an excuse. Then there was Hurricane Sandy. You remember Hurricane Sandy? Well, I had power on the Upper West Side. My husband was trapped out of town for five days. Class was canceled. I started writing. That was my second book. You know, I could keep going, but what about you? Is there, you know, is there a magic way of tricking yourself into those first sentences for your four books? That has not been a thing for me, really, uh, because I'm, I'm a relentless outliner. And it's easier just to pick up a scrap of paper and start writing down some ideas that aren't they don't have the the heavy weight or the pressure of being, this is the first line of the book or the first line of chapter two or whatever. So I outline so much. And then as I'm outlining, there'll be, there'll be sentences in there that are sentences I'll use. And so by the time I sit down to start writing, 
a lot of it's there and kind of in place already. So it just doesn't feel like such a giant first step. I have all these baby steps ahead of that. So there's not like a big leaping off thing. No, that sounds smarter and saner. (laughs) (laughs) Now, do you have early readers? I, I assume Walter Read some of your, I mean, and Walter, people no, in the audience I mean, should know Walter Shapiro is an incredibly talented political journalist uh, and spouse of Merrill Gordon. So uh, he is I imagine he'd be a good reader, but I don't know if you go do that. Okay. Um, yeah. I mean, it's really one of those things where he can say, um, you know, it's a great story, but what's the point? Or, you know, I know you worked hard to get that anecdote, but doesn't work there. Or have you thought of shifting it there? I think he's made my life a lot easier because my editors have all said I turn in clean copy. So once, you know, once it's out of the house, usually there's not an awful lot of rewriting and revising because I've done it already. Is he your only reader or are there others? Yeah, I, um, he's my only reader. I mean, I, you know, I wouldn't want to burden anyone else with doing it. And, and also well, you, you, you've got a whole kill, uh, kill a friendship if they hated it. What about you? Do you have, a, do you have several <laughs> readers? Like you, my spouse is my first and main reader. Um, and on this nonfiction book, my agent was very helpful. And of course, you know, by the time I got to my editor, it was in half decent shape, but my editor is fantastic and really helped in particular with structure for me. But I, uh, I also wanted to, uh, ask you about one of the things with your topics. It's a little bit different from, you know, Lincoln or Washington or Churchill about whom there are hundreds of books written. And then, you know, people be in the Midwest, in Illinois, and they'll find some attic with a trunk full of Lincoln papers or something. And a new biography will come out about Lincoln because there's all this new original research. And then some will have, you know, a slightly different take or emphasis on a Lincoln biography. You've chosen subjects that are maybe a level down from these most written about figures in history. But I know there's a new book on the Astor family coming out by Anderson Cooper and a co-writer. And wanted to ask you about that book and, and how you're sort of the authoritative writer on the Astor families. Have you had a look at that book? I have read the book and I have very complicated feelings about it. Um, the last chapter of the book um, is all about uh, Brooke Astor and her final years. And I was surprised when I first I was first I was flattered. And then I was really surprised when I read it because that's a 31-page chapter, and he refers to my book and my Vanity Fair articles 39 times. So it was kind of stunning. I mean, he told the New York Times this past weekend that he thought my book was fantastic. But Anderson Cooper is a terrific reporter. I've always really admired him. So I was curious to see what he could do with this topic. And he only did one original interview with Annette Laurenta. She was She's great. She talked to me as well. But that's one interview. There are so many people in what I think of as Astroworld who are still around and would have spoken to him. I mean, I was curious. Philip Marshall, um, Brooke Astor's grandson, said he'd never heard from Anderson or anyone involved in that book. Um, Liz Lowy, who was the prosecutor who followed the case, she never heard from Anderson. So I'm I'm disappointed. You know, he's he's really good at what he does. And I was curious to see what he would come up with with this topic. And he seems to have come up with my book. And again, it's, it's flattering, but it's it's a little annoying too. Hmm. I, I guess with 39 citations of your book, it, it's not exactly illegal, but it's not, uh, no, no, there's not exactly illegal. original research. 
let me stress, there's nothing, you know, it was, he cited me. It's not plagiarism. There's nothing legally wrong. It's just, I, I would have expected more from him is really, I guess what I'm saying. Um, so. Yeah. Yeah. As you know, with a nonfiction book, there's a proposal format for it. You have to write an original chapter. You talk about the characters and usually a, a very detailed chapter outline and, and then a discussion of competitive works in market and a discussion of the original research you're going to bring to the table. I wonder what his discussion of original research included in this chapter on Brooke Astor. I don't know. I mean, um, but, you know, he's Anderson. I'm sure he'll get a lot of a, a, attention and I'm sure the book will do well for him. I can't remember the name of the co-writer. I should have some notes on this. It was Catherine something or other. I, Catherine so I wonder Howell. how it works out. Catherine Howe, right. And, uh, you know, you always wonder what Anderson's involvement with the book even is. Because sometimes, you know, you get someone who's got a platform like that and they're just sort of spinning books out um, without doing that. That sounds like the, a bit of a Cliff Notes version of your book went into their book. Well, I think what got to me is I had a couple of favorite anecdotes from that, that book. And two of the people I spoke to at the very end of my research were uh, Brooke Astor's nurses. And Philip Marshall, her grandson, had told them they could speak to me. And Angela Laurenta said they could speak to me. And they came to my house one night and they told me wonderful stories. And there was Brooke Astor. She had Alzheimer's. She was 104 years old. And she was still getting dressed for dinner. She thought a lady gets dressed for dinner. So even though she was going to be sitting in front of the TV tray, she put on a nice caftan. She put on jewelry. She put on eye makeup. She was teaching the nurses how to flirt. Um, and I love that story. <laughs> and when I saw it in Anderson's book, I was like, what? <laughs> you know, I thought he just cribbed the entire story. You know, and, and it refers to me, obviously, but it was still I remembered getting it. I mean, as you know, the fun in the research is learning new things and presenting it to your audience. You know, there, there's such a high when you find something out that you didn't know before and kind of, oh, the, you know, the, the joy of being able to, to, you know, tell the world about it. So what fun is it to sit down with other people's research? I mean, if if somebody's died 50 years ago, 100 years ago, long, you have no choice. Everything you do has to be archival. I mean, no one's around. But if people are yeah. still around, you know, you, you want to talk to them. That's crazy. So not only, I mean, it'd be one thing to sort of have this fact that you uncovered and he uses the fact and cites you for having found that fact. This is your moment. You had a moment. He takes your entire moment and puts it into his book. Well, yes, to put it, to put it that so way. So the, the one yeah. interview that he did do, the one, you know, the person who said, yes, I actually did speak with, did Anderson do the interview or did Catherine Howe do the interview? Um, Anderson did. Oh, Anderson actually sat and did the interview yeah, with this person. the book that he did it. And in fact, um, Annette Laurenta mentioned it to me. And he had, in the book at least, he says he um, met Brooke Astor twice. Once he was having lunch with his mother. Another time he was working at a restaurant and she was there. But he said she didn't recognize him. So, um, you know, his Vanderbilt book is supposed to be terrific. And his grief, everyone says his grief material is really great. But... Um, as I said, it's just a funny, it's just a funny experience, but how, you know, how much is, how much can you use that, you know, makes sense to use? Yeah. Yeah. You can't, you can't cite one writer over and over and over again, and then turn that into your own, uh, you know, it's just a rehash of prior work. Well, you, you think the interviewing thing that's in his wheelhouse, he should have been out there doing all that stuff. But like you say, that is a little disappointing. 
We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Did you know that Delaware has endless discoveries? The first state invites you to explore miles of beaches and boardwalks, dozens of unique breweries, award-winning restaurants, some of the country's best state parks, beautiful garden estates, and even tax-free shopping. There's plenty of fun for the entire family and more. Find trip ideas and all the info you need to plan your Delaware discoveries at visitdelaware.com. It's time to take your career to the next level. With over 150 graduate degree programs, the Catholic University of America, located in Washington, D.C., provides world-class academics with a student experience that educates the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. Whether your professional calling is in engineering, nursing, social work, or any of our other exceptional degree programs, encounter the best of everything that Catholic University has to offer and discover the best in yourself. Learn more today at catholic.edu forward slash gradadmissions. Well, moving on from Anderson and Astor, um, that sounds like the, a less than pleasant chapter here. You know, I know. So he did talk about you in the New York Times. So hopefully that'll give you a few extra book sales. That would be nice. Yeah. One other thing I noticed uh, in reading up on you that I did not know prior. I, I know you've had a, a challenging time with uh, the generation above you and your family, but you are an expert on elder abuse. Did that come out of your work with the Astor book and the Astor family? Or were no, you already you. in that? The thing that's been interesting, um, I've ended up with this unusual niche, which is I've written about four very, you know, very elderly, very wealthy women who were all born at a time when women didn't go to college and they were really kind of trying to make their way in the world through, you know, philanthropy or um, or artwork or whatever. But as they all became older and, you know, all four of them, People took advantage of them. So with Brooke Astor, of course, it was her son stealing from her, her lawyer who went to jail. With Huguette Clark, uh, which was my second book, she had all sorts of issues. But towards the end, there were so many lawsuits over whether um, doctors and hospitals had taken advantage of her. She gave more than $5 million to a nurse. As you can imagine, that was a pretty great payday. She would she would write checks for $20,000 in the morning to the nurse, and then she would write checks for 30 in the afternoon. I mean, it's kind of an amazing. So there were all sorts of investigations wow. into that. Um, Bunny Mellon had an accountant um, named Kenneth Starr who went to jail for stealing from his clients. I've since discovered that the woman I'm writing about now, Pearl Mesta, had a chauffeur who forged checks. So, and I'm sure, you know, if, if these are only four I found, there must be many, many more. So I was, I've been asked to speak at a lot of 
elder abuse conferences, whatever about, because these are very dramatic cases. I think people think that if you're this wealthy, theoretically, you know, it, it, what's interesting is sometimes it's the family, sometimes it's the staff. Um, and, you know, everybody wonders, how do you protect yourself? Um, mm-hmm. I have power attorney for my parents. And when I first got it, I thought, I realized just how easy it would be, you know, I mean, it's scary. You know, they, I, yeah. I came to my parents and I said, okay, you know, here's all the checks I paid this month and here's what I've done for you. And my father goes, we trust you. We don't need to see this right. stuff, you know? Right. So it, it was, it was a lesson to me. Um, so yeah, I have become a bit of an expert um, in this area. I'm glad you're out there doing that. And just for my own personal experience, my, my mother, who's in her eighties had a call this the other day. And I think that these people who perpetrate fraud do target the older demographic. Oh, yeah. And the, the person called up and said, your daughter's in the hospital, you know, and she's going to be arrested because she was in a, in a drunk driving accident. And, you know, somebody was whatever, and, and she's going to jail and we need you to wire some amount for like bond or something like that. And my mom was like, oh, my God. And but they only want to take crypto, which was so weird. So she calls me up. She's like, Doug, you know. Diane's in jail and we need to send seven thousand dollars by uh you know, by Bitcoin in the next four hours. And, and, and so I'm like, mom, there's no jail that takes only Bitcoin. <laughs> this is like totally nuts. So it's, anyway, we it, uh, it avoided is. the fraud, but it's out there and they, they call people that they figure out are in their 80s. And, you know, some percentage of these people are just getting, you know, totally, totally abused. My mother would for a while would tell people, you know, don't bother me. I'm 98 years old. It was like, mom, don't tell them because they'll sell your name to 17 more people who will bother you. Um, right. But yeah, it is scary how many you've gotten those calls. I've gotten those calls. And sometimes they're very convincing. This is social security. You know, you, this yeah. is your bank. I mean, I, I know people are contemporaries who fell for it and, you know, you learn the hard way to be careful. So I want to ask you, I know we're winding down a bit, but in terms of your book, um, he was German. How much time do you speak foreign languages? Did you have to hire translators? How did you do some of your research? And a lot of it was overseas. Good question. And uh, you are clearly a professional interviewer to turn the tables on me like this. Uh, A lot of the research was in German. And I actually called up my old high school. I have a buddy who's running the English department at my old high school now. And he put me in touch with a German professor at the school who then did reams of translation work for me, all of Rudolf Diesel's diaries and letters and many, many documents from his work. Uh, and so that was super helpful and stuff that the world has not seen before. It came out of archives in Augsburg, Germany. And uh, did you go? I was curious whether you, or were you able to go? I well, a lot of this took place during COVID. So I ended up having to make these digital friendships with people who ran the archives in various places around Europe. But I did also so and they would they would scan things and send it over to me. And then I, I also did go. The, the favorite trip I had was over to Paris. He was a German, uh, you know, sort of by origin in a way. His parents had emigrated from Germany to France in 1850. He was born uh, in Paris, France, though, in 1858. And so I went to Paris. We found his childhood home where he had uh, spent the first 12 years of his life and the, the workshop of his dad and this little museum he used to go to, a technical museum in the third arrondissement. So he went in there and saw some of the exhibits that are still there today that were there when he was a child to go see them in the in the 1860s. And so I did get around a bit, um, but COVID also presented some challenges. So 
but th- thank goodness for, you know, email and scanning and things like that that you couldn't do, you know, 25 years ago. Your book has a mystery at the heart of it, and I don't want to reveal it in case you're not revealing it yet. But I was wondering, did you know going in that there was going to be a big question mark that you were going to have some fun trying to figure out the answer to? Or was this only like you're a year or two into it and you suddenly thought, what really happened? Because it's a great detective yarn. You don't expect this historical book to become a detective yarn. But I am ripping through the last pages going, what happened and how did it happen? (laughs) Oh, thank you for saying that. Yeah, I actually had a thought on what happened because the theories presented or accepted in history, what's in the Encyclopedia Britannica, for example, just don't hold water. There, there are so many holes in the prevailing top few theories, you know, suicide being the main one that's just sort of been what history has decided happened. And they're impossible, couldn't have been. And And I did have a pretty good inkling of what happened. And then the more I got into research, the more I'd unearth something that was like, that's absolutely what happened. And then time after time, until it was just completely, you know, lined up. So it just sounds like you enjoyed, you know, I don't think people often realize how how pleasurable this whole process can be. It really can be. And in this book, I, I describe it as the nerdy side of Indiana Jones. You know, it's not the whip <laughs> and the everything else, but it's it's that, you know, finding some fact that's obscure and hidden and no one has even dusted this thing off in a hundred years. And if anyone did the, and they looked at it, they think nothing of it, except in the context of this story, it means so much and reveals so much. And you think, Oh my gosh, what a piece of treasure this little piece of paper is. So. I had a moment like that um, in the Truman library. The woman I'm writing about Pearl Mesta was very close to Harry and Bess Truman, their daughter, Margaret and Harry Truman named Pearl Mesta an ambassador to Luxembourg. Anyhow, um, as you know, a lot of things aren't digitized at libraries. And it turns out that Margaret Truman kept a diary. And every time Pearl would take her somewhere, Margaret would say, oh, Pearl took me so-and-so and I met, you know, all these famous people and I had an amazing time and so-and-so made a pass at me, you know, and or I went and stayed <laughs> with her in Newport and it was the most beautiful house. And my favorite one, after Pearl was named ambassador, Irving Berlin thought that this was so funny that he actually wrote an entire show, Call Me Madam, which she was played by Ethel Merman. And mm-hmm. Pearl initially wasn't was told not to go um, by the State Department. And she said to Harry, Truman, I want to go. So Harry said, fine, take my wife, take my daughter. And they went, Margaret Truman in her diary said she hated the show. <laughs> Where else would you find that out? It was just, these were things that no one had looked at for the reasons that I was looking at it. And it was just, it was like, you know, you you touch these pages and you realize that these people, you know, they touch these pages. It it has that, you feel linked to history. So lots of fun. You really do. And in a way that AI cannot recreate. I mean, these pages are not connected to the internet in any way. You can't pull it together. These are facts you're finding out and creating stories that are real history so you're immune from this whole AI craziness. You know, you're going to be generating things for us that are that are treats that cannot we can't get any any other way. That may be true. But as, as a professor at NYU, it is a constant topic of discussion right now. What do we do? How do we use it? How do we discourage it? How do we encourage good parts of it? So um, mm-hmm. I think I'm not immune, <laughs> uh, at least in my professional life. Well, well, keep doing these these brilliant books and and you know, there's going to be it really is no other way to get that the kind of work you're doing, I think. Before we do the lightning round though, I want to ask you 
about your current projects. You're, you are very gracious to be here in particular because I know you're up against it with a deadline on this next book. So can you tell us about timing and and when we might expect this and anything mm-hmm. about it? Well, this was a book I thought would be done much earlier, but again, because of COVID and archives being closed, et cetera, and so forth, um, it's taking longer. It's scheduled to come out um, in November of 2024. The tentative title is The Woman Who Knew Everyone. It was after I'd written a chapter in which Haramesta had given a party for Werner von Braun, you know, met Queen Elizabeth, met Nikita Khrushchev, met Marilyn Monroe. After a while, I thought she really did know. Absolutely. She's like the zealot of her generation. So so I've enjoyed it. I'm at that phase where I'm, you know, I'm both racing to the finish line and feeling sad that it'll be over in a little while, although I'm sure I'll have six more months of, you know, fact checking and footnotes, et cetera, and so forth. But It'll be interesting because my other books were all about women who were very much in the news for scandals, for trials. And this is someone who was unbelievably famous. She was almost Kim Kardashian famous in her era. You know, a typical year, there might be 4,000 clips, newspaper interviews, and now very few people know who she is. So it's going to be a different experience introducing her to the world. You have diesel as a famous name. So the minute you say diesel engine, people say, oh, yeah, you know, so th- that yeah. will help you with recognition. I'm, I'll be curious to see um, what the whole marketing process is with this book, because it's just a different one. Yeah. Well, good luck with that. I can't wait to, to see it out there. So on to the lightning round with Meryl Gordon, your favorite book as a kid. Oh, My Secret Garden. I mean, read it and read it and read it, read it. Love the book. That's a great one. Book or books you're reading now? Um, I'm reading James McBride, and I just finished Ann Patchett. But there's a book I really loved called The Unlikely Pilgrimage of Harold Fry by Rachel Joyce. It is the first of a trilogy. It is completely wonderful. I've given it to everyone I know, and um, I hope people will find that book. The other two, of course, are on bestseller list, but this one is special. Oh, great. And I'll, I'll check it out. The most tense moment you've ever had during a research interview. Well, I've had people throw me out. <laughs> I think that's kind of tense. They work <laughs> for, for, for book interviews. I used to do a lot of political interviews and um, Bob Dole's wife literally walked out in the middle of the interview. That was not fun. Um, there was one interview I did for the Brooke Astor book with a man named Skylar Chapin, who was friendly with her and major cultural figure in New York. And only in the middle of the interview did I realize that he was very close to Tony Marshall and that I had better change my questions because Who, he was Brooks' son. Right. Yeah. Yeah. See, so he had come, he was on the other side of where I thought he was. So that was mm-hmm. a little, little dancing act on my part. What did you say about Bob Dole that made his wife walk out? Oh, I think I asked a question. Um, you know, it was literally, I was doing the wives of the candidates and I think I asked her about having children and she felt that even asking her whether she did, she wanted, she didn't want whatever was just an invasion of privacy. And oh. I felt bad, but you know, she was out of there. My God. Well, she's that she's going to have to have, or well, I mean, it's He's long, gone, long ago, yeah. but she should have had thicker skin at the time. Least attended book event ever. I love this question because everybody has one. Mine was St. Peter's University in um, in New Jersey, and they even paid me to come. 
it was a big college campus thing. And, you know, I went to the auditorium and it was incredibly busy and lots of people. What I didn't know is they had made the morning mandatory and they put me up during the lunch break. And there's a room that seats 500 and there are four people there. <laughs> that was not good. That <laughs> you know, you're exactly right. Everyone does have a, a good story on that on that question. Even the the biggest names that we all know. The living person about whom you're most interested to write the authorized biography. You know, I thought a lot about this question, which is interesting. And I should start by saying, I don't want to write an authorized biography because if you write an authorized biography, then they get to have final say. Um, a couple of years ago, I was contacted by the estate of Harper Lee, not a living person, but they were interested in, in having me write the authorized book about her. And I was ecstatic because who would not want to write about Harper Lee? I went down to Monroeville, Walter and I went, we got to see all, you know, everywhere she had been, where she had lived, what she had done, the famous courthouse, um, everything that she had owned and put into store in five rooms of a bank vault. We got to see that. And I was excited about doing it, but negotiations went on and on. And at the end, they said they needed approval of the manuscript. And I couldn't do that because I didn't know what I was going to find. I didn't know if they were what they were afraid of finding, but you can't write with somebody looking over your shoulder thinking, you know, what if, I mean, it ended up, it fell apart for other reasons, but that's sort of a little bit of the one that got away. And it really taught me that I, I would not be able to write an authorized biography. Yeah. Well, are there ever authorized biographies where the final say is not, I, I feel like there's an example, maybe was it Isaacson and Steve Jobs? Did he say, I think I'm so, but, you know, final but, words but Walter at that point had enough stature in the profession that he yeah. would have, that would have been the condition going in. And if you wanted Walter, you would agree to that. And Walter mm -hmm. being a very trustworthy fellow, um, you know, I assume that Steve Jobs. Is, so he sort of held his ground on that and, and got it. I'd certainly um, believe that, you know, Walter had final say. Yeah. Last question for Merrill Gordon. One piece of advice for the listeners. Um, if you're thinking of writing, um, A, please do it because we all want to read what you have to say. Uh, keep a journal take notes, take snippets of dialogue and conversation, really almost sort of think about unusual things you, you know, you see and do all day. I mean, it's just kind of, um, or even ordinary things you have something to say about, but I really have found over the years, um, keeping a journal just reminds you, and then you go back and look at it six months later and you think, oh, that, that was an interesting thing. So that's my little bit of advice. Besides oh, read all great. of our books, we're very grateful. <laughs> right. Yeah. Go, go, go buy Mrs. Astor regrets. You can get that one instead of Anderson's. Meryl, thank you so much for, for coming in. I know you, you've got a busy, busy time uh, getting this book ready and traveling around. So thanks for coming in. Always a pleasure, Doug. If you enjoyed this podcast, please download, rate, subscribe, write a comment. Let me know the authors you want to hear from. I read all the comments. Thank you. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. 
It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. It's time to take your career to the next level. With over 150 graduate degree programs, the Catholic University of America, located in Washington, D.C., provides world-class academics with a student experience that educates the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. Whether your professional calling is in engineering, nursing, social work, or any of our other exceptional degree programs, encounter the best of everything that Catholic University has to offer and discover the best in yourself. Learn more today at catholic.edu forward slash gradadmissions.